0: During this decade of centenaries, there's been a huge amount of research into aspects of the Irish Revolution that were previously forgotten or overlooked. Women and their activism in the revolutionary cause has been a big part of this. We're going to hear now about a new book that explores how the events of this period impacted women's lives. It's called Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism, violence the editor of the book is professor linda connolly director of the social sciences institute at maynooth university and linda joins me now linda you're very welcome indeed to the history show
1: thank you maz
0: tell us first what was the overall aim of the the book and how did it come about
1: First of all, the book was uh, funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations grant in 2017, and it arose very much on the foot of the commemoration of 1916 in 2016, where we saw increasing attention on women who had fought as combatants in the rising and more critical questions perhaps than had been asked before about the role of women. So a number of new questions were arising and it was very important, I felt, to turn our attention then to looking at the period after the rising up until, broadly speaking, the end of the Civil War, where it was presumed perhaps that women played less of a role because of you know the nature of the violence the transgressive violence that occurred some women were involved in coming among etc but it was broadly presumed that this was a masculinist war where men were mainly fighting against other men and men were mainly killed. So it struck me very much at the time that it was necessary, first of all, to ask new questions about both the role and the experience of women in this later period. And then secondly, perhaps to challenge some of the myths about women's experience of the War of Independence and the Civil War in particular. So as part of of the IRC project, I organised a public conference in the Royal Irish Academy, which brought together a number of scholars with two aims. One, to really very much embed detailed pieces of research in the work that had already been done. The pioneering work of people like Margaret Ward, for instance, uh, who used the term unmanageable revolutionaries in her book, her pioneering book. But secondly, to produce new research, to ask new questions, particularly in light of the wonderful range of new documentary sources that we have available now in Ireland in only very recent years. So it was an opportunity to both build on the pioneering work over the last 30 to 40 years on gender and revolution in Ireland, but then secondly, to conduct new research and ask new research questions.
0: So there are 12 chapters, 12 different contributors. They aren't all historians. You take a multidisciplinary approach. Give us an idea of the disciplines that are involved here.
1: Sure. So obviously there are historians, women's historians, gender historians, but also historians of the revolution. But then there are perspectives in sociology, for instance, the theories of revolution that have developed in other disciplines haven't really been uh, rigorously applied to the Irish context. And certainly the theories of gender in revolution, where we begin to, I suppose, look at how attention to gender in both the unfolding of revolutions and the building of new states has been looked at, for instance, by uh, Valentine Mag- Magadam in relation to 20th century revolutions in Mexico, Algeria, Iran, uh, etc. We could go on Russia, China, Cuba uh, and so forth. So so there's an awful lot to be looked at from the perspective of looking at what has been written about revolution and secondly, gender in war in civil war. So we can learn a lot, for instance, from the Spanish Civil War and the Greek Civil War and other civil wars internationally. And then I suppose we also have perspectives from literature as well, we can learn more about the past and in particular about the period of revolution from looking at literary sources as well. So it is a historical text. It relies mainly on archives, on documents, but it's an attempt, I suppose, to broaden out our understanding of revolution beyond that, I suppose, narrow perspective, the idea that gender was perhaps an add-on rather than being constitutive of the revolution itself.
0: You've got a chapter in there yourself. It's called Towards a Further Understanding of the Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Women Experienced in the Irish Revolution. Now, gendered violence is a term that we're hearing more in relation to this period. What exactly does it mean and how prevalent was it?
1: Well, first of all, if you move outside the literature on the Irish Revolution, this isn't a new term at all. I suppose the most straightforward way to explain that in terms of this period of Irish history is that where you have conflict or war, there tends to be a gender dimension. It's gendered. It was mostly men who were killed. Uh, The women who were killed were casualties, if you like. They weren't, you know, combatants. They weren't involved in that kind of violence. But the idea that women weren't impacted by violence is untrue when we actually look at sources. So what we can see is that women did experience a different kind of violence that was gendered. And what I mean by that is that women experienced different kinds of violence in larger numbers than perhaps men did. So a very good example, Miles, is the practice that we saw, particularly in the War of Independence, but also afterwards, of forced hair cutting. Uh, Different terms are used, shearing, cropping, Shaving and it might seem like a lenient form of punishment, but this was conducted all over the country by both sides Crown Forces, IRA as a way of both punishing women who were either seen as being close to the enemy or as being traitors, as betraying the cause, so to speak. It was gendered in that it was aimed at women, but secondly, it was policing women's behaviour and sexuality primarily. So who women, for instance, were free to have relationships with uh, or be friendly with or even speak to. So that's an example of how in any conflict or war, uh, violence is gendered. It tends to be targeted differently at men and women. And because women's violence was different, perhaps the violence women experienced was different, it doesn't mean necessarily that it was lenient. Uh, This had uh, quite an impact uh, on women in terms of their perception in the community, but also hair cutting was often also accompanied by other violence, very traumatic violence, such as beatings, you know, very frightening raids on houses, sexual assault as well to some extent. We are slowly getting an insight into uh, sexual assault as an aspect of the conflict. So the gendered violence really suggests that women experienced violence but in a different way and that this was determined in some way by gender.
0: Now when it came to this sort of sexual policing there's an inherent contradiction. Uh, You might even say hypocrisy because In relation to the issue, the the witness statements and pension files of many women have revealed that the IRA were apparently quite happy for women to befriend the Crown forces as long as they were doing it for different reasons, for non-sexual reasons.
1: Sure, absolutely. So, again, that's a very good example, isn't it, of how violence is both gendered, but it's also shaped by the particular context or or conflict. So, as we know, for instance, women as combatants were were crucially important. Uh, you, You know, we can see that in the witness statements, you know, in terms of carrying messages, you know, bringing supplies late at night in very dangerous conditions, you know, to men who are hiding out perhaps in surrounding countryside carrying information that could damage the other side, so to speak. So, yes, absolutely. But then on the other hand, in terms of women expressing agency or choice in relation to relationships with men or indeed being employed in some way by the Crown forces or working in a shop or a service that served the RIC or the Crown forces was treated completely differently and was a basis Uh, for the kind of gendered punishment uh, that I spoke about earlier. And this is not sort of just stopping an individual woman and and cutting her hair and walking away. Sometimes that did happen, but very often, and we see many reports in the newspapers, for instance, of this being often gangs, large gangs of of men from the IRA side, nine, 10, sometimes up to 15, masked, taking the women away from the road or away from the house and, and cutting their hair in this manner holding them down etc so that would have been extremely frightening and very traumatizing for an individual woman often a, a young woman who was quite simply considered to have a close relationship and it wasn't just that she may be carrying information it was that she was actually exercising choice in terms of her sexuality and so in a sort of a non-romantic way as sexuality and relationships Likewise, and gender can tell us a lot, I think, about the way in which the conflict was played out at the sort of micro level in terms of how locally, if you like, movements were monitored. And clearly the behaviour of women was monitored very closely indeed.
0: Now, in terms of new research, you're actually still discovering some of these stories, most recently in yes. relation to an incident in uh, Tankardstown in County Meath. What's, tell us about that. What, what did you discover there?
1: Yes. So, again, this is very typical of the kind of work that I do. You you know, you don't have, for instance, what we might call a sexual assault archive in Ireland. And often this kind of research, you you find a source hidden or embedded somewhere where you're least expecting it. But this is one I actually found in the newspapers. And what's really interesting, I think, often about looking at the role of women specifically in the Irish Revolution is... How a lot of these stories, if you want to call them that, or events seem to have disappeared very quickly from the public memory and are quite embedded in in the private memory, so to speak. So this was uh, very typical, really, of the period 1922. Tankertstown, which I'm sure you know well, Miles, from Kells, is just between Navan and Kells. And in September 1922, there were four named men in a newspaper report who raided two public houses and both of whom were lived in by uh, widows. In one case, Mrs Finnegan in Gritia, which is not too far from Tankardstown. She was living there, running a public house, and she had quite young children. So this group, who on arrival claimed to be irregulars, terrorised the the woman and her, her children. Her husband had died from TB. Then they moved on to a second public house, which, again, this is a very typical story of the area, who happened to be the sister-in-law of the other Mrs. Finnegan, uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Finnegan. She was also a widow, her husband, a brother of the, the former Mr. Finnegan. He also died of TB, so the two brothers died of TB, both owned public houses. And then in the case of Mrs. Elizabeth Finnegan's uh, pub at Tanker's Town, Again, there was uh, a long raid, quite a, a violent atmosphere, and it was reported in the Meads Chronicle that one of the men raped a, a servant girl, a Mary Doyle, and a second attempted. Uh, assault, a sexual assault. And this is reported, there was at the time, obviously, the, the, the kind of legal system was, you know, not operating properly. But there was a public, a parish court, it's phrased in the report, held in Kells. The four men were arrested. They were sent to Manjoy I have seen the records of this and subsequently appeared in Trim Circuit Court. And it's interesting that Mary Doyle who was probably about 17, from what I can gather at the time, she testified in the parish court in Kells, which was packed. And it was Mrs Finnegan who encouraged her, who was insistent, I suppose, on pursuing this, despite what was probably an incredibly terrifying event with fear of reprisal afterwards. The courtroom was packed and for Mary's testimony, the courtroom was cleared. So the men were arrested. They subsequently were brought to trim and there were two charges. One was obviously the the charge of of robbery, which the two men who were brothers, the men were acquitted of by jury and the second charge of rape. Never proceeded because they were acquitted on the first charge, but it's reported in quite a lot of detail in the newspapers, and I think it's interesting. It really is a question of, you know, if we if we don't look, you know, the women are not there, and it's only when you begin to ask these questions, the kinds of questions that are being posed by the authors, uh, in the chapters in this book, that you begin to see then in the sources other examples of what women really experienced, the trauma they experienced, and it allows us I think as in the case of Mary Doyle to say well, well you know you wonder whatever happened to her how she lived her life and what the impact of the revolution was in her life and other women like her who experience that kind of sexual policing and uh, sexual violence indeed that I spoke about earlier.
0: Now, after the revolution during the the, the 1920s, the period of the Commonwealth Government, women were very definitely in Ireland anyway, ushered back into the kitchen. That, though, as you point out in your introduction, although Ireland was not unique in that respect, that was not the case in all revolutions in the 20th century, was it?
1: No. And again, here, you know, I think we have an awful lot to learn. And I suppose in this book, I'm really raising a lot of these questions. I haven't done a, a global study of international gender relations in relation to the Irish Revolution. But we, we do look and raise these questions in the book. And as I said, I, I draw on the work of Valentin uh, in in particular, She argues, first of all, that attention to gender in the unfolding of revolutions and the building of new states is is deficient in many studies. But she also drew particular account to the different models, if you like. And she suggests there are are two models. One is a women in the family model was followed in the 20th century by Mexico, Algeria, Iran and, and Eastern European countries, among others. And in all these cases, she suggests that the strong roles played by women in making revolutions were rolled back by new regimes which stressed ideologies of gender difference. And this, I think, is a model that clearly applies to Ireland's revolution and its aftermath. When we look at, you know, the very clear erosion of women's rights, things like in 1927, you know, women were effectively banned from sitting on juries, for instance, and that wasn't changed until 1976. And there are other examples. Whereas in contrast, Mogadam argues that in, just to give you some examples again, Russia, China, Cuba... Vietnam, Nicaragua, etc. By contrast, women actually gained more formal and actual rights, despite, if you like, the recuperation of their own autonomous organizations by the states that emerged. So, again, that's very typical. The organizations that were very active, like Common etc., or the women who are this is looked at in the book, in Claire McGing's chapter, the, the women who were involved in the anti treaty. Debates, these are very effective, powerful women in their own right. Very quickly, if you like, their politics and organizations were recuperated in the new state. But in some societies, women actually gained more uh, formal and actual rights. So that wasn't the case in Ireland. And what it suggests, I suppose, is that revolutions clearly possess a gender dimension that opens up a space for further understanding the causes, the course and the outcomes of revolutions, including the Irish Revolution, which took its own particular course, as we know, a hundred years later.
0: The book is called Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism, Violence. It's published by Irish Academic Press and is available now. The book gives a great insight into how the Irish Revolution impacted women and is hopefully a springboard for further research into this aspect of our history. Linda Connolly, many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening.
1: Thank you, Miles.
0: That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer, Lorcan Cansey, goodbye and thanks for listening.